We will be in uh, Matthew 1 and 2 for the next few weeks. And if you are a guest here, we're so thankful uh, you are with us today. Matthew 1 starts in the verse 17 verses with a little backstory on Jesus Christ. Most would probably start in verse 18 and just get right to the birth of Jesus Christ. But Matthew had a certain angle he wanted to shine the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The diamond of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ that taken from any angle. You know, a nice shining diamond that uh, maybe is on your finger this morning. If you take it out and uh, you turn it around, you'll catch a different angle in each side. And that's really what the four gospels are. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They are four different looks at one person. And Matthew decides that he wants to pick up the story from the Old Testament when things went dark. It was a long silent night from the end of the prophets in the Old Testament. If you have gotten to Matthew 1 by this point, you might even see in your Bible a white page. Uh, The uh, people that put this together uh, were not the inspired writers. It was some publisher and wanted you to know that there's, there's a great divide. Well, the reality is there's not. It's all God's word from beginning to finish, and it's not a new story starting in the Gospels. It's actually reaching the story Zenith. This is what all the Old Testament was pointing forward to. All the promises made by God would now be promises kept in Jesus Christ. And Matthew starts with a genealogy. You see that word in verse 1, which is a record. It's a history. Just like we all have genealogies, and that's what Matthew wanted to see. Mark, as we were in, say, now uh, come January, it'll be two years when we started, two years ago we started Mark, and and you might remember Mark just shoots right out of the gates, flies right past, doesn't even mention the birth of Christ, just starts with the action of John the Baptist preparing the way, and boom, grown-up Jesus is on the scene. Uh, Luke goes back just as much as Matthew does to before Jesus was born and even talks about his cousin John the Baptist and then John, totally different angle. Well, he's a genealogy as well, but it's the word who was God and was with God. So uh, if you're ever on Jeopardy and the question is, you know, uh, how many gospels start with the genealogy? I know they don't ask the questions that way, but there's actually three because John's a genealogy. Takes them back to the word who became flesh. Now, why I say that is, you know, this month, I do hope, on your hearts, is a desire to tell others the good news about Jesus Christ, to be the light that Ronald talked about. And there isn't a one-size-fits-all approach to how you go about doing it. Just look at the four writers of the Gospels. If you're on an airplane and... um, The person next to you's got the window seat, you're in the middle, and Mr. Snooze is to your left on the aisle, and you ain't getting out. You could turn to the person looking out the window and say, hey, uh, do you want to know about Jesus Christ? And you happen to see that they were, you know, reading Josephus' Antiquities. And so it gives you a hunch. They like backstory or something. And you go, well, I've got a backstory for you. And you maybe start them like Matthew or Luke does before Jesus was born with some genealogy. Whereas you get off the plane and um, you got to wait around for your Uber to get there. And so you sit down in the coffee shop 
And uh, you see, you know, this um, kid coming back from freshman year and he's got his philosophy book and he's waxing eloquent to no one. And so you say, hey, I've got some philosophy for you. Let me tell you about light and dark and that the light came into the darkness and the darkness rejected it. And you go John on him. You talk about the good versus evil battle. And you talk about how the word made, became flesh and dwelt among us. And, and maybe that would be appropriate. And then you catch your Uber and there's somebody else in it. And it's just a five minute ride. And you're like, gospel of Mark. I'm getting right down to it. And that's how you do it. And, and that's what I want you to see when you think about the beginnings of each gospel. Is that there are different ways to come at who is this Jesus. And Matthew wants to come at it from giving you a backstory, a, a genealogy. To say there's a record of Jesus before he existed, and it ties him to two really important people. It's right there in verse 1. Do you see it? The record of the genealogy, and that's just a word for origins, beginnings, of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David and the son of Abraham, which tips you off that we're talking about somebody who is connected, inextricably linked. You cannot pull apart from his Jewish background. So when you study the Gospel of Matthew, you know he probably has the religious person in mind, particularly a Jew. We never got that in Mark, did we? He was, Mark was written for every man, for, for the, the Roman uh, soldier or publican or whoever it might be, the important guy in society that just wants to see a king of action. Well, there's Gospel of Mark. Gospel of Matthew says, I want to take you back into these pages and all the names and prove to you before we even talk about his birth who he stands in the long line of. And you might be surprised by what you find. So let's, let's look at Matthew 1, 1 to 17 today and see what we find. What story does Matthew want to tell before the story starts in verse 18? Follow with me as I read. The record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David the king. David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa was the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah was the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amon, and Amon, the father of Josiah. Josiah became the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah became the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel was the father of Abihud, and Abihud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor. Azor was the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud. Eliud was the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Mathan, Mathan the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. So, 
All the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. The grass withers, the flowers fade, just like all these names. But the word of God stands forever. Quite a list. And... uh, I don't encourage you to try to rattle that off in front of everybody or anybody unless you practiced a few times because there are some tongue twisters in there. But this is more than just the phone book of the New Testament. This is a testimony of God's grace. That's what Matthew is doing in starting his account of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, he wants you, the listener, to know one thing about the history of the world leading up to the birth of Jesus in verse 18. God is a God of grace. With every name on the list, it's grace. But it might not appear that way at first glance. So he wants to Show a gracious God from generation to generation to generation keeping his promise and not starting over. It's interesting actually in verse 1, the record of the genealogy, it's, it's a phrase. In, in, so for those of you maybe new to this thing, uh, in the New Testament it was originally written in Greek. In the Old Testament it was originally written in Hebrew. And in Greek, uh, that record of the genealogy is Biblos Genesis. And that's, you could kind of hear it. It's Biblos, like the word Bible, which is a word for book. And then Genesis, which is the word you hear Genesis, beginnings. Now that phrase is actually only used once here in the New Testament and two other times in the Old Testament when it was translated from Hebrew to Greek called the Septuagint. And the only two times Biblos Genesis is used is in the book of Genesis, in the book of beginnings. And the first time it's used is Genesis 2-4. And it's an account, a recording of God's creation of the world. And then it's used in Genesis 5-1. And it's an account of the creation of the creatures that will inhabit that world. And so Matthew picks up on that phrase and says, it may seem like that the God who started this world and the God who filled this world with a bunch of people who became failures, foiling or attempting to foil the good plan of God to make his name known to the ends of the earth, he's not done yet. There's a new record he wants you to know And it's a record of the genealogy, the start, the origins of Jesus, the Messiah. And then Matthew wants you to see two names blinking off your page, David and Abraham. Two patriarchs, David's called a a patriarch in Acts 2, as in a father figure to the people of Israel. And they stand out because both of them had a promise made to them. Abraham's promise made back in Genesis 12.3 was, you will be a blessing to the whole world. God's promise to David in 2 Samuel 7 is that through your line, King David, I will establish an eternal king who will reign forever. And those two promises leading up to the arrival of Jesus Christ may have looked like God broke his promise. Because it was silent. 
No prophet speaking for 400 years. No word from God. No hope. Until Christ comes into the world. And now Matthew wants to establish, okay, Jesus came into the world. And he's writing this after the death of Christ, 30 years later. But he wants the reader to know that he's done his work to prove that Jesus stands in the line of Abraham and stands in the line of David. So he gives you a genealogy. And, and I know that doesn't mean much to us today. Uh, a few months ago when we started the book of Daniel and we talked about how names meant something. And some of you do look at the, the uh, history or etymology behind the name that you were given or you're going to give to a, a child. Well, genealogies also meant a lot, especially to the Jews. That's why you have recorded that Joseph and Mary had to come and register themselves for a census. You had to know which line you belonged to out of the 12 tribes, and that would tell you where you fit in in life. And that's somewhat lost on us today. Even when the census rolls around, uh, they're not asking questions like they used to ask. I was... Um, a few uh, years ago, I was given a um, gift, or I won it, actually, at a white elephant. I know we all uh, would just leave those behind if we could. Another party with another white elephant, cap of 15 bucks. Don't make it something lousy. But anyways, somebody put in there that 23andMe gene test, where you spit into something, and the creator of that business takes everybody's spit and tracks where everybody's from. And then you find your tribe of spitters, and you say, wow. And so I did that a couple years ago and find that I came from a jet, you know, it was like 48% chance and it gave me this blob of green on a map near what is modern day Croatia. So guess who I'm cheering for now in the World Cup? I mean, just a loyal Croat am I. So I knew kind of where Ashoff's came from, but then I was tempted because it had this deal, hey, special time, you know, for the next six months, get half off over at Ancestry.com, and you can look at your family tree. And I said, why not? Maybe I come from something. And so I did that, and you've done this maybe, but you see pictures that people are also doing that, trying to find who they are in this world, and uh, tombstones and um, Census cards. That's what I found looking up mine. I found a census card for my grandfather, my namesake, John Adam Ashoff, from the 50s. And um, it's, you know, a four down there. Don't steal his social security number. Um, go ahead and try. But he worked for a steel company. But there was an interesting thing on there. It's right after it says steel manufacturing company. He had to put uh, a letter. And that letter corresponds to, I think the question above it is station in life. You know, are you just a regular old Joe worker or are you a business owner or are you self-employed? And it kind of created maybe uh, this way to kind of know where people fit in in the system of uh, the working world. And uh, as I put all of it together, all I walked away with is I am a peasant par excellence. Everything going back as far as I could see. Uh, nothing notorious about my tribe of people, but, you know, maybe you'll find better luck there. That's what Matthew is doing here in Matthew 1, 1 to 17. He's trying to establish Jesus's family tree to show to the skeptical Jew after the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, decades later, he has the track record in his family tree to be the rightful Messiah. And that word Messiah there in verse 1 is, is the word for anointed one in the Old Testament. A king, like David, anointed by Samuel. But not just an anointed one. Related to that promise that David would have an eternal king. And related to the promise to Abraham 
that he would be a blessing to the nation. So we're going to trace the story of grace from its beginning to end, starting with Abraham in verse 2 down to verse 16, concluding with Jesus the Messiah. Now, also, if you're going to share the gospel this Christmas and you, you know, sometimes get into that conversation and, and the person is debating you about, you know, Jesus, yeah, he might have existed, but how do we know, you know, he really came to save the world and that was his mission? Just say, friend, can I just tell you what the name Jesus means? And maybe that'll clarify some things. God saves. And that's a great starting point, a jumping off point for a gospel conversation. You may want to put him in the category of just a great teacher, and he was a teacher, a great teacher at that, and he had great ethics, but his name literally meant God saves. Jehovah is my salvation. To say, like, look, you may not want to believe what your Bible says, but it's unequivocal when you start even with the name of Jesus, it's the name Savior, anointed one. Son of David, son of Abraham. And then they might wonder, well, what does Abraham have to do with anything? And you take him back to Genesis 12, and that's where we'll start in this genealogy. Abram is a nobody. In fact, I'll say not a nobody. He's an anybody. As in where Genesis 12 and Abraham comes on the picture in the Bible, he is just any man out there existing. No, no prerequisites did he pass to be chosen by God in Genesis 12 other than that he was just alive. Now, it's interesting, right before Genesis 12, you do have a genealogy, Genesis 11. And right before that, that genealogy comes after God has what? Come down at Babel, when man in his pride wants to build his way up to God. And God has to come down and say no. He comes down in Genesis 11:5 and says, Behold, one people, and they're trying to uh, build their way up to us. So let's go down and confuse their language so they will not understand one another's speech. What's that represent for us? It, it, it's the um, unsuccessful task any person ever has to climb a rope to God of their own making out of sand, as one preacher said. You want to work your way to God? You want to earn your way to heaven? You might as well climb a rope of sand. That's as far as you're going to get if you try to work your way to God earn his favor. And so where it looks like God could be done with creation, he is going to now single out a man named Abram at the time, Genesis 12, and just speak to him out of nowhere. Abram comes from a line of polytheists, worshipers of many gods, moon gods, but not the one true God. And God speaks to him and he makes him a bunch of promises. Look there in Genesis 12. He first says, you need to go from your country, from your relatives, from your father's house. I'm going to give you a land. And that would be a wonderful grace gift to Abraham because land was everything back then. If you didn't have land, you really couldn't make a living. But he's going to make it even better. God makes another promise to Abraham. I'll make you a great nation. You won't just have land. You'll have a progeny. You'll have lineage. And at the time, Abram and his wife Sarah had no children. And I'll make your name great and you shall be a blessing. And, and then of all things, God tells him this. I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you, Abraham... All the families of the earth will be blessed. How does the story of grace start back in Matthew chapter 1 verse 2? A story of God's undeserved grace. And that's where all of our stories start, friends. If you're new here this morning and you haven't been in church in a while and you're trying to figure out what makes Christianity different from all the religions of the world, our starting point is undeserved grace. Undeserved. 
He picks an undeserved anybody like Abram and then says, through you, the entire world is going to be blessed. What is that, friends, other than God's undeserved grace? And if you are in Christ today, what did you do to get where you are as a believer other than be a recipient of God's undeserved grace? That's how this story starts, just with the first character, Abraham, to say nothing of what he did in his life after being called by God and shown undeserved grace. He was a liar and a deceiver. Did, was he made righteous by his faith, by trusting God? Yeah, but when it came down to it, even Abraham, when he was pressed in a difficult situation, when he went into a new land and there was a king who saw his wife Sarah and they didn't have kids and he thought, that guy's gonna take my wife from me. I'll lie and say she's my sister. What's he doing other than trying to build that rope of sand again? Even though God made him a promise, he was gonna take things into his own hands. And when after 25 years, he still didn't have a child, and he says, well, I, I, I clearly won't have one for my own wife. I'll take a maid servant. What's he still trying to do, though he's been shown undeserved grace and a promise from God? He's still trying to work his way and earn his way to God's favor, to make his future happen. And that's not how God's grace works. But name after name, and we could go through two through six to get to David, and you'll see story of undeserved grace after grace after grace. Isaac, Jacob, Judah. God is still keeping his promise to Abraham, and they all turned out like their father Abraham. Isaac was a deceiver. Did the exact same thing as his dad Abraham when it came to his fear of losing his wife. Jacob, you know of his deceptions, or if you don't, always trying to angle and, and get something from someone else, whether it was stealing the birthright from his brother or trying to get out from under his uncle Laban's rule, always manipulating, always trying to make his own way in the world. And then Judah and his brothers, what they did was outright terrible in selling their brother Joseph into slavery. Story after story, just in the first verse of Jesus' lineage, does God pull the plug and say, Abraham, you know what? Um, all you have produced is more sinners like yourself. Well, friend, that's the whole story of the world. There are no exceptions to the rule. Isaac and Jacob, liars like their dad. What about next verse? Uh, Judah was the father of Perez and Sarah and Zerah by Tamar. You know what that was? That was an incestuous relationship. Tamar was his daughter-in-law who was childless, so dressed herself up as a prostitute so she could have children. So now we have incest in this family line. Then you jump down to verse 5. Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, another prostitute. Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth, Ruth the Moabite. What were the, how did the Moabites come into being? Lot and his two daughters, another case of incest. This is the family line and lineage that Matthew's putting out there for the Jewish reader to be reminded, we did not get here by being the best of the best. In fact, the truth is we're some of the worst of the worst. So what's the common thread through those first five verses of God's grace to the world? Sinners undeserving of the grace of God. And that's them 
and that's you, and that's me. And that's how the story of the grace of Jesus Christ starts. Any objections? Are you maybe the one person in history outside of this line that you would say, you know what? So much for all those sinners out there. God's going to choose me because I'm special. You know, I'm not like the rest of the lot of humanity. They might be the rank and file, more like the rank and foul, but I'm something different. Look at what I've done. And the opening sequence to the story of Jesus history is that God has shown grace to the world and it's big letters, write them across your notes, undeserved grace. So welcome to church today and welcome to the Advent series. I hope that you see that the only prerequisite to getting anywhere with God today is seeing yourself in that same category. A sinner who deserves nothing from God And God is willing to give all of his grace in his son, Jesus. That's the start of the family line. And maybe one last thing before we move on to the story of David and his family. If you have been a recipient of that grace, and if you rejoice in the undeserved grace of God, Can you look forward to the next few weeks? Can you look forward to the return of the family member who will be at your house, who you couldn't wait for them to leave at Thanksgiving? They're coming back. Can you not look at the undeserved grace God has shown you and bend that out? I mean, you love it, don't you? You love it that you could stand before God and Christ, believer, accepted in Him, So how should someone else have to show up to your house? Or the neighbor that bugs because they do the Chevy Chase big light display and uh, you can close your blinds and pull the curtains at night and you're still, my goodness, the Shekinah glory across the street. Whatever it might be. You know what we need to have this holiday to really impact people? Showing them undeserved grace. I promise you that'll get their attention faster than whatever is the opposite of undeserved grace. Oh yeah, they've got to earn. We love it when we get the undeserved grace. Sometimes we loathe it when we are in a position to have to show it to others. And if that was the case, this story would get no further than verse 2. But now we're in verse 6. We're going to move from God's grace to the world and its undeserved grace to talk about God's grace to his children. We've made it to verse 6. Matthew wants to highlight God's grace to his children. And if there was a favored child in the eyes of the Israelites, the Jews at the time of Matthew, it would be David. He was the king. He was the best of the best. And you can read the accounts of David's life. And see that the kingdom flourished, the kingdom of Israel. The kingdom that the Jew that was reading this in the time of Matthew would have still been looking forward to the return of. 
and say, there's got to be a son of David that's going to come and restore all of our glory. Why? Because Israel reached the zenith, the high point of its glory under David. And you might say, well, really, it was Solomon. Well, Solomon was handed the kingdom. David did it all. He was the man that conquered all the rival nations around it. He even knew Solomon couldn't get his act together to get all the supplies. And so Chronicles says, David gathers all the supplies. The only thing he wasn't permitted to do was what? Build the temple, the house of God. But he did all the pre-work. You know? I, I, I buy... Or I work and I buy the Legos and I open them in the packages and I dump them in the different containers so they don't mix up the colors. And then I give them to my boys and say, go ahead, build the whatever. This is what David handed off to Solomon. He was, he was peak in the family of God. He was the best of the best. And yet, talk about needing grace. Next part of verse 6, David was the father of Solomon. And Matthew could have just wrote, Solomon was the father of Rehoboam. He could have, but he wanted to remind the people that even David, the best of the best, was a man who needed grace. So he adds in, David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah. Adultery and murder, that's the history Matthew reminds God's people of, of the, the, the king who was promised, you'll always have a king to sit on the throne in 2 Samuel 7. And this is what you read through and are reminded of. And then you read the rest of that list, verse 7, 8, 9, and 10 to 11, right before the deportation where we've been in Daniel. And what do you see in all those names of kings? Successes and failures. And if you rode the waves of... Um, uh, political popularity and, and conquest in the time, if you read through uh, First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, and you're trying to see uh, how did God keep the kingdom going, there is no rhyme or reason to it other than the grace of God. And what kind of grace is that for his children? Well, first, it's undeserved grace, but I want to call this next section, when God's grace is working the lives of his children, like you and I, or in the case of David down through Josiah, his anointed kings, his chosen ones, we'll call this undeterred grace. God is determined to get to the Messiah. He is determined to keep his promise and nothing can stop him from it. Not even the failures of Solomon and Rehoboam and Abijah. And the list goes on. And these are the kings of Israel, these are the kings that should have known the law. These are the ones that were told in Deuteronomy, don't multiply wives, have more than you should have. Don't multiply horses and wealth. Keep your eyes on the word of God, on the law of God. And what did these kings do? They did the exact opposite. And, and why did they do it? What was their problem at heart? Let me read you a quick summary of, of what took Solomon and Rehoboam and Abijah down the wrong path. And see if you can relate 1 Kings 11.4, speaking of Solomon, when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord as God, as the heart of David his father had been. Do you think the writer of 1 Kings 11 is trying to get a point across? And is the point, let me, let me list all of Solomon's sins. 
No, he gets right to the heart of the issue. It was the heart of Solomon. His heart had been turned away from God. His heart, his love for God, who gave him so much grace, got cold. Rehoboam, 2 Chronicles 12, 14. The son of Solomon was no better. The summary of his life, Rehoboam did evil because he did not set his heart to seek the Lord. What's the issue? It's the heart. How about Abijah, his son? 1 Kings 15.3, Abijah walked in all the sins of his father, which he had committed before him. His heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God, like the heart of his father David. What's the issue for those God chooses, these kings who knew what was right and what was wrong? It was a heart issue. What's the issue for us when God is determined determined to put grace in your life. What's your issue? It's not the thing. It's what's behind the thing. It's your heart that needs to come back to the Lord. Sure, you got things in your life that distract you and trip you up and they're in your way, but if you just work on the fruits of those without getting to what's going on in your heart and you work your way back from whatever sin it is that's pulling you off the path, And you say, really, why is that happening? My heart is growing cold to you, Lord. Just like these kings. And what does God want? Someone that loves him with what? Heart, soul, mind, and strength. You take care of that. The rules take care of themselves. Because they're not burdensome, the commands of God. When you see them through the lens of God wants my heart. Look at the next name on the list. Can things turn around when God is determined to to keep this line, to keep this promise? Asa, what's the summary of his life? 1 Kings 15, 11. Asa did what was right in the sight of the Lord, like David his father. The point of this whole second list in God's undeterred grace to his children, whether it goes back and forth, up or down, best of the best or worst of the worst, kings in the line of David's throne, God's response to these somebodies is his promise would not fail. And that is his undeterred grace to you. Now, we should not take his undeterred grace as a challenge to test the boundaries, should we? We shouldn't. Romans 6.1, because where sin increases, grace abounds more. Should we go on sinning so that grace would increase? The answer, may it never be. Grace should never entitle us to sin. But grace enables us to see God for the gracious God he is. And we don't have to earn our way back to him, do we? If you're in Christ and you sin, do you have to put together a perfect week of Advent readings before he wants you to pray again? Of course not. You come right back to the promise that Nothing separates me from the love of God in Christ. That is a determined grace of a loving Father. Now with that determined grace can come discipline from the Lord for your good, Hebrews 12 says. To to recorrect where you're going. But brother and sister in Christ, rejoice this morning that God is a God of undeserved grace. That's how you got into the family of God. And he is a God of undeterred grace to get you back in when you're fighting and kicking to get out. 
And that's the good news we see in this second section. God's grace to his children. So now let's move to the final section. Where it starts out in a really dark period. The deportation to Babylon, verse 12 through 15. And and we've moved from anybody's in the first section of God's grace to the world. He'll choose anybody. There's no partiality with God. To the somebodies, the best of the best, the kings of the kings. And the somebodies don't cut it apart from the undeterred grace of God. But now we get to the true nobodies. Because once you get to the deportation in the history of Israel, even in Ezra and Nehemiah, when they come back, it's never the same again. They're just lost in the dark. It seems over for Israel. And God's promises are gone. And so you just have a bunch of really hard to pronounce names from verse 12 to 16. And you can try to search your Strong's lexicon or Google Abihud or Eliakim and see if what you could come up with. Nothing. It's the dark ages for Israel. It seems like God is breaking his promise. But he's not. Verse 16. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born who is called the Messiah. Before anything got better for the hope of Israel and their Messiah and the world going back to Abraham, things bottomed out entirely. And then the light that shines against the darkness, that that John 1 light that we've already talked about this morning. How did Jesus arrive on the scene in verse 16? And then we'll see next week in verse 18. John 1.4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. This was the light coming into the world, verse 9, which enlightens every man. Verse 11 of John 1, he came to his own. That's what Matthew is recounting. Israel, he came to you, and what did you do? Verse 11 of John 1, he came to his own. And those who were his own did not receive him. But here's the undeniable grace of God. The grace to you and the grace to me. The undeniable grace is this. As many as received him to them, he gave the right to become children of God. Even to those who believe in his name. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh. So genealogy didn't matter, did it? Nothing about anybody's history bringing to the table before God and coming to Christ in repentance and faith means anything other than those who received him, he gave the right to become children of God and nothing changes for you today. God's grace to you in verse 16 is this. This is the amazing grace of God. Imagine standing before him and him saying, let me, see that, um, let me see that family tree of yours. And you could have dug up on ancestry and found out that you come from some pedigree. And you could say, hey, I mean, what I wanted to find when I found out I was, you know, in that general Eastern European region, that maybe there was some reformer in there. Uh, one of my heroes, a Martin Luther, a John Calvin, 
But this is the way it works, friend. I could find a really impressive person on that list. And none of their merit, none of their goodness, none of their character, none of their ability, none of it can be given to me. I am who I am. So you could find the most important person in your family history and think, you know what, I'm a somebody. But that's a piece of paper and you get nothing from them other than maybe bad cholesterol. You get nothing else. It's just a name on a list. You get nothing. They don't roll over any righteousness to you, any merit to you. And so you stand one day before God and you try to give them that paper. And you could even add your own goodness to it. And you'll be rejected. On your own account, from your own sin. Or you can find that same family record. And by trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, here's the crazy thing. Every good deed that Christ did in his life, loving his Father, heart, soul, mind, and strength perfectly every moment of his life, always keeping the law in every way, When you become a Christian, you actually get everything from his history on yours. That's the good news of the gospel. You don't get anything from anybody else. You get sin. That's that's what comes to you. And you you know what? Some of you can look at your life and some of you maybe can identify with, man, I I know my family history. I know the people around me. How could I have turned out any other way than this? And you start wanting to point fingers and blame others. But it gets you nowhere, does it? And then you see the goodness and kindness of God in Jesus Christ. In all his perfections. In all his love. In all his glory. And you say, by trusting in Christ and in his perfect life. And is his death on the cross for me. That's my new family tree. And nobody else is going to be listed on it when you stand before God one day. If you're in Christ, it's the only name that will matter. You'll say, that's that's who I'm with. I'm in his family. And God, well, if you're in his family, you're in mine. All of the righteousness of Christ that God demands from the sinner is given to you from him. So which do you want to choose today? Which family tree do you want to stand on? Your own and the things you bring? Or do you look at Jesus Christ and even see the undeniable grace in the gospel of God? That he sent his son into the world to save sinners the first time. So that when Jesus returns a second time to judge the world, you're in his family. By being in Christ. And he puts it right before you today in this genealogy. The gospel is a story of grace. From beginning 
and Abraham of undeserved grace, through David and all the screw-ups of undeterred grace, and then hitting its high point in Jesus, the Messiah, undeniable grace. Will you receive him today if you're not in Christ? Because what's better than grace? Being given something you don't deserve at all. Trust him today. You know what story I see over these 17 verses? If I had to say, what's the best cross-reference I could find to explain the, the genealogy of Matthew 1, 1 to 17. One cross-reference I want you to put in your Bible for this, and it isn't the genealogy in Luke 3. It's this. John 1, 16. For of his fullness we have all received grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. That's the story of God's people. Grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. That's how we all got in. And how does he keep us? Undeterred grace. So that at some point in our lives, we look at Christ and say, it is undeniable the grace God has shown me. So I pray if you're not in Christ today, you would trust him. Because of the grace he has shown us in giving his life for us. Now, for the believer, it doesn't mean that we can't get cold to that grace. In one of the, maybe one of the, the, the thermostats or the thermometers that tests, how am I, am I really living in the grace upon grace upon grace of God is when I evaluate the relationships around me and I ask, am I showing grace upon grace upon grace to someone else in my life as a believer or am I doing something else? What does that usually look like if it's in a relationship, a friendship, a, a spouse, a kid? Are you seeing more of the things to correct and needle nose them on and put the finger in their chest? Or are you looking for opportunities to say grace upon grace upon grace upon grace because you've shown it? That's a good test right now. Do you really understand the grace you've been shown, believer? How are you bending it out to someone else right now? In your marriage. Because you only see what you want to see without grace. You just, you, this is how you'll live. You'll see this list and you'll say, yep, liar, deceiver, incest, adulterer, murderer. That's how you live when you just walk around looking for what? The, the, the speck in that other person's eye. And not see the grace that God has shown you to remove the log in your own. And we do that in our closest relationships. They do this, they do this thing. What thing? You know, they leave the toothpaste out. You know, it's been 12 years of marriage and the tooth. Really? What in the world? But you know, that's where the stuff spoils, isn't it? It's a heart test. Is that the thing I'm going to see? And then the sandwich wasn't ready when I got home. Stop the presses. Or is it grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace? Maybe it's in the church. When's the last time you had something positive to say about the church? Whether or not you're a member here. 
Are you the person going around that just sees fault after fault after fault after fault in the church? Rather than my point of view up here, and maybe if you stood up here like I get to do, you see what I see. Grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. Is that how you see your church? Or just see the faults? This whole room is a room of grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. And if you haven't found yourself seeing it like that lately, may this be a gracious adjustment of your sights today. Because if you, if you refuse to see it, is that how you want to live? Never seeing the grace of God that's around us everywhere, working right now. That's certainly not how you want to die. Where all you see is problems and complaints. Rather than look back over a full life and say grace upon grace upon grace. Because of one name. Jesus, the Messiah. The son of David, the son of Abraham. Undeserved grace. Undeterred grace and undeniable grace all found in him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and the work it does in our hearts. That only you can take a list of names of people that we know so little of from history. But you show us your grace through them. And when we use the word of God as a mirror to our own hearts, Father, we see the same in our lives. That we've been in need of grace and you've shown it to us. So thank you that we can come into this Advent season, this celebration of the arrival of your son. And the first word we hear is grace. And that makes us grateful children. We thank you for that. Amen.